Hey everybody, just a bit of a heads up before we begin about today's episode. It contains some adult content and language, so might want to keep the kids out of the room for this one. Thanks. I made a deliberate choice to be true to myself every step of the way and not lose who I am or what I believe in because I think that that's critical to going to bed at night and looking yourself in the mirror uh, before you go to bed and, and when you wake up in the morning, you have to be okay with who you are. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Joanna Walters is a 1994 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. She was Division I swimmer for the Navy, and she went on to become one of the first women serving aboard combatants as a surface warfare officer. Joanna finished her career in the Navy at Recruit Training Command Great Lakes and graduated with an MBA in 2001. She's enjoyed a very diverse career, ranging from Procter & Gamble, real estate investing, REI course writing, casino owner, COO and eventual CEO, principal of a private equity firm. She is the author of Girl at Sea, travels as a motivational speaker and is the owner of e-commerce site Wish Rock Relaxation. And let me just emphasize for everyone what a badass you were, because in high school, you call yourself a girly girl, but I mean, you were a great swimmer. So you were recruited as a swimmer. You're a great student. And you were recruited by Naval Academy, by West Point, by like Harvard, all these like top schools. So this is a uh, first world dilemma that you were in. Oh, do I side between West Point and the Naval Academy? Thank you. No, that's that's definitely true. Um, and I, I was an all-American swimmer. I just missed trials in 88. I trained with people who medaled in 88, 92, and 96. It was a really big part of my life. So I was used to training at a level that very few people ever do. So physically, I could handle it. I could hang with the guys physically. I could do flutter kicks like ad nauseum. I, I could do all the physical stuff was great. But the professional part you know, you have to, they're training you mentally, physically, and then emotionally, right? Um, you know, you've got the academic part, but you've got to be able to, well, break you down completely and then build you back up because eventually the hope is you take command of a ship or you take command of a platoon or um, a company. And, you know, that's part of the mission of the U.S. Naval Academy. Like around 1992, I think, there was a law that changed that so that women could now be in combat situations. And no, November did, of 93. 93, okay. And so what did that do for your psyche and the psyche of the other women at the Naval Academy, knowing like the whole game has changed for us? Like the, the door is open. Was that scary or was that attractive? 
It was a little bit of both because a lot of us probably, uh, me included, you know, were thinking of a certain career path that was really different. So then what it meant was if you were physically qualified, you had to select a warfare specialty. I ended up going surface warfare. I picked a Spruance class destroyer for my first ship. Uh, I really almost went Marine Corps, believe it or not. Because <laughs> it was kind of like a partnership between the Navy and the, and the Marine Corps, right? Like my dad, I think, was a, he was a Marine, but he trained with the Navy, you know, to get his aviation. Well, absolutely. So our Navy vessels get the Marine Corps to their um, mission. Right. You know, right. and, and my last ship was a tank landing ship. And so we carried an entire platoon or regiment of Marines. So 300 Marines were aboard as well as 300 Navy personnel. And the bow would go down and they could drive the tanks right onto the beach on the Lamar County. And, you know, that was that was pretty cool to work closely with Marines. And the Marine Corps is a department of the Navy. And you were one of like the first women to be assigned on one of these combatant ships. And then you were on two ships. So mm-hmm. maybe you weren't the only woman, but you were like a very small minority. So what was that learning curve like for you? It, it was tough. Um, the first ship, I was the third woman on board. And then the, the second ship, I was the first and only woman until we integrated. And so, you know, the, it was definitely uh, an interesting time in our country's history. And, you know, I think you had to really learn how to let things roll off your back and not take things personally, which is hard sometimes. Gender was obviously the most, I guess, prominent variable when you're out there, right? It's like Joanna's a, Joanna's a woman. We are surrounded by men competing in an arena that pitch you physically, edu- you know, educationally, emotionally. I, I'm curious about the world's perception and optic of you being a woman and then how you interpreted that with regards to whether it was fuel, whether it was pride or whether it was fear that played into how you went about your day, day to day. There was lots of times. I I mean, I think we're all scared at different times, right? Um, But you have to push through that. You know, you you can't give into that part. There's a, a little, there used to be something with surface warfare women. We would run to our staterooms so that no one would see us cry. <laughs> because that is very unprofessional to, you know, let something get beneath your skin to the point that it rattled you emotionally. But we all know that things rattle us emotionally uh, as how you, how you handle that. And I think that that was probably one of the hardest things for me. Um, my dad had been a Marine. And I guess he is a Marine because Marines are always Marines, right? <laughs> and my dad raised me to believe that I'm just as good or better than than the next person, whoever they are. That, you know, to have that inner confidence and belief and drive in myself, even if it's something hard, I'm just going to do my very best. And that's how I've approached something. And, you know, I look at some of the, the really big challenges that I faced and I look back now and I, I'm like, gosh, how did I get through that? <laughs> You know, how, how did I manage to thread the needle of that situation? And, and there were, you know, many situations like that. And it felt like an immense responsibility too, right? Because I had to set an example for the younger women coming up. And then I also had to not let the ones who had gone before me down, who were so badass and strong that, you know, cut their teeth and paved the way. 
you know, I mean, it, it felt like a lot of responsibility and there was this common thread between many of us to not ask for help. And it, it took, it took my marriage falling apart for me to really get and ask for help unabashedly and to recognize it and to soften my edges. Cause I was trained to take command. Either there's the woman who went to the Academy just to get her quote MRS degree, but nobody's going to go through that to get their MRS degree. <laughs> right. And then you didn't want to be that girl. So then it was challenging even on a personal level. A lot of guys were intimidated by the things I've done and the things I've experienced and all that, you know, that by that, because I was their peer, I was every bit as, as smart as they were professionally and, and trained and they're equal. So some guys don't want that when they're looking for a partner, right? Man, we, we see that we see that play out, whether it's a woman trying to get into high-level politics or, you know, maybe right. maybe maybe a very a male-dominated world. It's either the woman is pegged as an overachiever and just sort of just like all her claws out, like I have to do this because maybe she feels that way, or she's too passive, right? She's too right. emotionally labile or whatever. And, you know, men are, men are critiqued to that same level. And I just wow. find it's like you get, you get pigeonholed, but yet you've got to balance that out somehow. And clearly you did. It, maybe it took a while. The fact that you had to find that sweet spot somewhere in there, and whether it was a struggle or not, that's that's commendable to be able to find it because you're held to a different degree, a different optic than the man standing next to you. And, and that, that had to have been a case throughout your whole Naval Academy training as well as your professional posts, would you say? I, I felt like I was under a microscope often. I felt like it was it was hard. I made a deliberate choice to be true to myself every step of the way and not lose who I am or what I believe in, because I think that that's critical to um, going to bed at night and looking yourself in the mirror uh, before you go to bed. And, and when you wake up in the morning, you have to be okay with who you are. Okay, so you're talking about going into this special room on the ship to cry. And I get it, like you can't, you know, in a combat situation be, think, you know, oh, I, I feel really scared at this moment, you know? So they, they kind of, they kind of break vulnerability out of you, right? Because you have to be in charge. You have to be confident. As you mentioned, that's the way you survive in the military. And that has, that's a really important application, but yeah, in the civilian world nowadays, you know, vulnerability is this huge leadership strength. So does that just not work in the military or is that something evolving into the Navy culture? Or is it just two things that can't be reconciled? I think that it is being reconciled right now. But I think that you've got decades of culture that has, you know, thought that, you know, we are warriors, we don't show our vulnerability. And, you know, I think that even as we got to um, the 22 push-up challenge days where, you know, we know the stats, right? We know that there have been 22 veterans a day that were committing suicide, because they weren't talking about the things that were beneath their skin, the things that they'd seen, the things that they'd heard, the things that they'd experienced that, you know, deeply affected them. They were trying to just suck it up 
They were trying to um, show a stiff up, stiff upper lip and, and just kind of soldier through because that's the way we were trained. And I think that the culture itself has changed dramatically. Like back when I was going through, you never even had an option of counseling or therapy or talk about PTSD. It's just this unspoken, unwritten kind of secret, like the dirty little secret and, and underside of our armed forces. And I think that that's changed, especially as people became aware of, of our veterans' health and their mental health and how important it is. And, you know, it took me a long time to, I don't want to say embrace my vulnerability. I, I would call it softening my edges at times, but I mean, it took me a while to get to that place that I felt safe to do that because it's scary to do that when you've been trained in this other way. And, you know, you didn't want them to see you make a big mistake because instead of lifting you up, you know, you were labeled as some, you know, dumbass. <laughs> or, I, love, I love the idea of embracing vulnerability. I think that's a great way to phrase it too. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's that process of growth. And I think it's cool to call it that because it sounds like that's what you did, but you had to balance that with strength too. It's this curious little, little equilibrium you have to find, right? Strength mm -hmm. and vulnerability, which I think is those two things are, they're not congruent all the time, right? Well, I totally agree. I think there's beauty and strength in your vulnerability and they are not congruent all the time. Um, you know, when you're conducting a difficult mission or you know that people could die or the stakes are incredibly high, whether it's in the military or in a business endeavor or whatever it might be, there are times that you're teetering on the edge and it's scary and you're kind of like, ooh. <laughs> but I, I think for me, I fall back on no matter how hard it is, I know no matter what, I will get through it. I know that like if life is like a sine wave and I've gone th through some difficult, uh, if the amplitude is one to 10 and I'm at the bottom on a one, I know I'll bounce. I know I'll get through anything. And I know that no matter what, I'll make it through. But it took a while to get there, if that makes sense. It's good advice for right now for everybody, you know, because we're uh, speaking of sine waves, like we're, we're, in, we're collectively culturally, societally in a, in a, in a weird spot right there, but it's just a matter of, of knowing that you're going to get through it and fight through it. And you're a good testament to that. I think in a lot of ways. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you guys. You know, all we can ever do is our best, right? And we just do the very best we can. And uh, hopefully uh, we've set the foundation in such a way that other people don't feel like they're alone because they're not. We're really not. Joanna, specifically, how did you earn the respect in that certain, in that second ship? Like, you know, what were some takeaways that if somebody is going through that kind of experience, trying to make their way and earn people's respect and be a leader, say in the Navy or in any branch as an officer, what, what uh, did you do? Are there any key things that you, that, that you learned? Was it just work your ass off as simple as that or what? No, it's more than that. Um, I mean, my strategy was different, right? I could kind of be a PT stud. So I could, my my unwritten goal was to get the best score on the ship in any ship I was on. And I pretty much did that, like push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, run. I used to be able to do that. But not everybody can approach it that way. You look at what your strengths are, right? And I'm not the kind of officer, I wasn't the kind of officer or leader who's unapproachable. 
I don't do or ask my people to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. And I don't talk down to people. I'm approachable. I'm genuine. And I lead from the heart because I think that people feel that and then they want to work for you and they want to do their very best. And I'm not one of those negative leaders. I, I kind of believe that people live up to or down to expectations. Um, and so I like to hold people to high expectations uh, and, and not think the worst of them and also feel like I was their advocate instead of, oh, you know, I don't want the officer to know kind of like parenting, right? Like you want your kids to be able to come to you with any problem and then you can advocate for them, whatever that might be, but they need to be honest with you so that you know what you're dealing with so that you can help guide them the right way. And they still are going to have to take their own bumps and bruises and get stronger from it. But I think that's part of it. And so I was always really genuine. I don't know how to be any other way because it's how I'm wired and I do my very best and I'm approachable and um, have a thick skin. Do you think that glass ceiling that you mentioned in Girl at Sea, do you think that's lifting in the in the military, in the Navy? I think it's absolutely lifting. And I think that even if you look at the numbers, um, we've got over 30% of women at the academy, uh, the same in the fleet. And I think that, you know, things are changing, maybe not as fast as we would want. You've got a culture that has seeped through the veins of an organization for a very long time. But I think that it's it's absolutely changing. You know, one of my classmates is a congresswoman out in New Jersey, Mikey Sherrill. Uh, we've got, you know, female admirals in, in very high leadership positions, command at sea. And, you know, we've got all sorts of things happening. And, you know, really, it's amazing how much progress we've made. And to be honest and truthful, it was hard, but it was also, there was also this sense of camaraderie, even though, you know, I felt like, I felt like it was kind of, okay, I'm, I'm the girl one, <laughs> um, at, you know, at times it's still, it still was a lot of fun. It's not like it was awful or terrible. I mean, they were, it's a great job. Where else in the world can you get paid to go around the world you know, and, and be responsible for a multi-million dollar piece, piece of equipment and hundreds of people's lives at the age of 21. Jeff, do you mind if I one more, just last question? I just want to make sure you get a chance, Joanna, because I know that's a, that's a great ending, but we kind of almost skirted a little bit of like the deepest, darkest stuff. Wasn't there some uh, asexual assault like on one of the ships? Uh, it wasn't on the ship. I had a, a really bad situation when I was going up for my EL board, but it wasn't a sexual assault. But I did have something that I, I would call it like extortion when I was um, just days away from graduating. And I probably should have had a serious amount of counseling for that. And I didn't. And, and it was something that I never would have imagined could have happened at the U.S. Naval Academy. So... I was less than a week from graduation. My parents were coming in like five days and I uh, was deeply in love with someone and um, he was a year behind me and I had the last group of finals. And so I didn't get any leave between school and graduation week. And as the senior person in our company that wasn't on leave, I had the watch and he got us dinner and he fell asleep in my room and he had all his clothes on. And I had all my clothes on and I had fallen asleep. And uh, one of the guys who was a year behind me, instead of just sliding this report under my door, he kind of 
kicked my door open and, and put it on my desk. And at the academy, you're not allowed to be in bed with anyone. It's completely illegal and you could be kicked out. It's serious. And um, basically, I immediately shot out of bed and I was scared because I, I was caught in a bad situation, even though I, I mean, I was fully dressed. I had all my clothes on. It's not like I was naked or anything. And so he stood there at, at the door and the guy that I had dated was a six foot five inch tall water polo player. I used to joke that he was mountain arms. And so, you know, he was a tall jacked water polo player and he just was frozen in bed. He laid there and I stood at the door and I hadn't really looked in the eyes of a criminal before. And at moments like that, time stands still really, in my opinion. And he looked at me, uh, this this guy, and he was maybe five nine and, and pretty thin. I I mean, he wasn't a division one athlete or anything, um, but you know, I knew I was in a bad situation. And he looked at me and he said, "Think about it. It's ten minutes. You can lie there and suck it, or uh, graduate from the academy. I'll give you ten minutes. Meet me in this room." And I was shocked. And, you know, if you imagine like, okay, everything I've worked for, for four years, my parents are coming in less than a week, I'm done. And it's 10 minutes. All I'd have to do is whatever he wanted for 10 minutes and and he wouldn't tell on me. So um, he held my whole life literally, uh, you know, in the palm of his hand. And I felt like that. And time stands still. And I remember I... I just weighed everything and I thought, you know what? I will be successful with or without a degree from the Naval Academy. Nothing is worth who I am and what I believe in. And he will have to rate me because I am not going to do what he wants. And I just, in the moment, I knew in my mind that no matter what, I wasn't going to do what he wanted. I wasn't going to compromise myself. And so he left and then the boyfriend immediately stands up (laughs) And I'm looking up at him and he's grabbing my shoulders. He's like, do whatever you need to do to make him not touch you. And he sent me into that room and I went into that room and I became incredibly parched and um, he took his pants off and he just, he was like, I just got my loan. I don't need money because you could get a 0% loan for like $20,000. And a lot of people got a car because I don't need money. I'm going to see my girlfriend over the weekend, but I need this right now. And I started talking and I started talking about religion and minorities and God and what a degree from the Academy means. And I knew that he'd gone to the Naval Academy prep school. So he had an extra year under his belt and he understood what graduation meant. And I just kept talking (laughs) and I was like, totally parched and I just and he's sitting there on this desk with his dick out I'm sorry if that's crass I I don't mean for it to be crass but finally he looked at me and he said all right I'll think about what I want from you I'll find you over the weekend and he put his pants on and he left one how does a relationship survive that it doesn't like I, I wasn't equipped with the emotional wherewithal on how to handle that part emotionally. I didn't even know that it was extortion. I called the cops and I'm like, what is it called when someone tries to force you to have sex 
to, to force you into doing something. Oh, that's extortion. <laughs> I was Pollyanna. I didn't even know what it was called. And at that point, I just wanted to graduate and put that behind me. Um, I did run into him one more time and my cruise box. So I came back from that weekend. He said he was going to call me and he didn't. And I was taping up my box and I was afraid to be alone. And I told my roommate and um, it was like 1130 and you send your box to your first duty station. So it's all of your life in a box. And I was taping mine up and he walks by and everybody's asleep and the hallway's dark. And he walks by and he looks at me and I say nothing to him. And he looks down at me because he's standing and I'm taping. He goes, I talked it over with my girlfriend and I decided not to turn you in. And I said nothing. But if you could have read the look on my face, it was like, hell, you talked it over with your girlfriend. I would love to run your balls through a garlic press is how I felt. <laughs> and so I, I never saw him again. But I wish you had. Yeah, I wish I had. Um, but you probably didn't have a garden press or garlic press with you at that moment. <laughs> Isn't that uh, such a, a, a visual? <laughs> like yeah. a painful, painful visual. <laughs> yes, yeah. Ouch. Woo. Yeah, no. You won't um, even have balls and you can appreciate how much that <laughs> Yeah, woo. Every guy who's listening is like cringing. Cool. Um, yeah, I don't want to get in trouble with her. No garlic presses near her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Um, and so I, I kind of went through the motions of graduation week. Things were good. The relationship fell apart. I lost respect for him. You know, we all wonder, do we have what it takes when the moment is so tangible and so important that what you do will dictate your future? Are you going to freeze or like, are, is the scream going to come out of your throat or is it going to be, you know, like you wondered, will my training kick in when I need it the most? And I felt like I stood up for myself, even though I went into that room, I didn't just, you know, do his lie down there or suck it. I didn't do that. I decided that I would bet on myself, even if it meant I had to get kicked out. And it didn't mean that I graduated I went to surface warfare school and I started to really think about what it meant to be an officer. I mean, this guy was going to have young 17 year olds who work for him that are trained to follow the direct order of an officer. And it started to eat me alive inside. I felt like I needed to turn him in. I felt like, you know, whatever, if I would have a non-judicial punishment, so be it, it was the right thing to do. But then I thought the military at that time point, that time frame would really kind of stick the woman and the victim under the microscope and they would try to basically say she was a slut and she deserved it. And that's the way that it had been back then, unfortunately. There wasn't like victims' rights or you know, it really became a case against, oh, well, she wore this skimpy outfit or she deserved it or you know, it, it would be to discredit me and I knew that that was what would happen. I had experienced something else similar, you know, the year before, and it was incredibly stressful and hard. And I started to fail tests, things I knew, like knew really well. And a dear friend of mine who was in surface warfare school with me, he's like, okay, Joe, what is going on with you? I studied with you for this four years ago, the first time, and you rocked it. I know you know it. What the hell is going on? This isn't you. I know this isn't you. 
and I laid it all out and I told him and I cried and, and he was like, you don't have to do this. Even if it's the right thing to do, if it's not okay for you and it's going to eat you alive emotionally, you don't have to. And he gave me permission not to now, not to tell, not to, not to tell. And maybe that was, maybe in retrospect, that was weak of me. Maybe I should have been stronger and been able to handle it, but I knew I couldn't handle it emotionally. And there weren't, there was not the support that there is now in a situation like that. And I had to make the choice that would allow me to survive and give me a chance to do well. And that's what I did. But I did very openly describe something that very few people would talk about, you know, in a book. Well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. It's brave of you to talk about it. And I'm sure other people, other women, even other men have gone through similar experiences. And uh, I think it'll, I think it'll help people realize that they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, Eric and I have encountered, you know, women that have been in our warriors program that have a history of gender ostrification or, or, or sexual assault or at least innuendos. And, you know, what's clear is that their ability to be able to speak about it comes from their own power, but also from people like you who came before them who were strong enough to speak about it. Um, and so you've, you've uh, left your thumbprint on, on, uh, on that. And that's commendable for sure. Thank you for saying that. That warms my heart. It was hard to talk about. It was really hard to write about. I had to relive it completely in order to write about it. And it was hard. Um, yeah. I remember when I wrote that part of the book and I remember feeling it all over again and it's authentic and it's not edited and it's real and it's genuine. Um, so I, thank you for holding that space with me. Yeah. I'm glad you left it in. That took, it did take a lot of courage because I'm sure there was some pressure to, you know, delete that part and just make it like a, a you know, a nice fairy tale. Yeah. And thanks. This has been a really beautiful interview and good to have you as a neighbor. Thanks for joining us, Joanna. We really appreciate right. your time and your transparency and, and everything you've, you've done to, uh, to create your, your world and your trajectory. Thank you guys for having me. It's really been uh, an honor and I'm grateful for what you guys do. And um, I would love to, to be more a part of No Barriers and your mission and your events and what you're doing. So I, I'm really grateful uh, for what you guys do too. Cool. Um, Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Jeff. And No Barriers to everyone. See you next time. production team behind this podcast includes senior producer Pauline Schaefer, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman, and marketing support by Heather Zocali, Stevie DiNardo, and Erica Hoey. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it here with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. Oh my.